So now we're into the next section of the podcast, which is evidence for evolution. Uh, there are there there's a huge there's a mountain of evidence. You always hear that, but you never then get the follow up of specifically what is it. Um, one of the best articles I've read, and it's long. But one of the best articles I've read is on TalkOrigins.org. It's called 29 Plus Evidences for Macroevolution. It is filled with um, all kinds of different lines of evidence, transitional forms, beautiful transitional forms. It's amazing. Um, amazing. you gotta, you got to read it if you're interested at all in the topic. Um, I'm not sure who wrote it, but we'll, we'll have a link on the, yeah, on the website. Yeah, we'll have that. Um, so that's a great overall um, and fairly in-depth view of the evidence for evolution. Very quickly, we'll run over a couple of them. One, uh, the geographic distribution of species. This one isn't brought up um, at all, I think, because it's difficult to understand. Well, it's, it's not only is it difficult to understand, but it's impossible to refute when you're looking at creation or intelligent design type theories. Right. There, there really is no reason to have marsupial wolves only in Australia and everywhere else you have placental wolves. Yeah. Well, if God is using, they'll often say, well, you know, apes and humans look kind of the same. They share a lot of the same DNA because God's using a common blueprint. Well, if he's using a common blueprint, why would he give the marsupial wolves uh, a pouch and, and placental? Why don't you just pick one? Yeah. Well, not only that, but if God is using a blueprint... Does he not create man in his own image? And if you really look into the DNA of apes and men, we're talking there is quite a bit of blueprints theft there. I mean, we're talking plagiarism between the two at this point. That's another so. really good article. Um, plagiarized, you know, genetic errors and, and plagiarized um, DNA. Uh, but, uh, and, and we'll get into that because it's fat. It's I think it's one of the smoking guns for evolution. Yeah, I agree. But you know, not only do you have marsupial wolves, the existence of marsupial wolves isn't really the issue. It's the fact that you have marsupial kangaroos, you know, wolves, and, and all of the marsupial mammals are on, on one continent on Australia. Why don't you find them in Europe? Evolution explains that very well. They're isolated, and they develop from a common ancestor, and they all develop into marsupial mammals. They developed on their own, whereas the rest of the wolf populations on the other continents developed. Developed independently, independently. right? So you have a certain environment that wolves fill that niche very, very well. And so you have independent adaptation, and you evolve the wolf form independently on Europe and in Australia. But... In Australia, you only had a marsupial mammal to begin with, and so you end up with marsupial, marsupial wolves. wolves. It explains it very, very well. Um, but you, why would God do that? Unless he wanted it to appear that evolution occurred. Yeah, unless he's, once again, God's up there trying to make us doubt him. Yeah. Now this um, plagiarized DNA is, is a great one. Um, I brought this up to my dad because he's an attorney, right? I thought, I think you'll appreciate this. There was a court case in the 50s about, uh, I think it was chemistry textbooks and uh, phone books, where they brought up, uh, you guys plagiarized stuff from us. And in both cases, um, the defense was, well, we had a common subject. So, of course, uh, in chemistry, you're going to have very similar textbooks. Of course, you know, we're covering the same geographic area, so we're going to have very phone similar books. phone books. Uh, and in both instances, the answer to that defense was that not only were the similar names uh, copied over... But the mistakes. But the mistakes were. Uh, and that, the judge found, as, as clear evidence of plagiarism. Uh, there's no way you're going to copy over the mistakes. And interestingly enough, phone books now insert false, false names, names just and addresses... Find. False entries just to prevent this sort of thing. Now, are you trying to tell me that there are mistakes in our DNA that actually run between species, like, uh, say, the apes and us? Yes. You know, I, am I, trying to I, I find you that. that very difficult to believe, but right now I feel like I need some vitamin C. <laughs> All right, so, so the gene to make vitamin C. The reason w there are two mammals that cannot create vitamin C. That's why it's a vitamin. We have to ingest it instead of making it. Uh, those two mammals are uh, primates, you know, bonobos, orangutans, uh, great apes, gorillas, chimpanzees, and, and humans, um, and guinea pigs. Uh, both of them have mutations in their gene that creates vitamin C, the GLOW gene, 
It creates uh, vitamin C. Uh, interestingly enough, the guinea pigs have uh, a separate mutation, but all the primates have the same mutation. Yeah, we're talking not only same, but it's in the same spot. So they have like a single, like either a point mutation or a frame shift mutation in the same spot between all of the apes. Chimpanzees have it, and uh, human beings have it, uh, bonobos and gorillas. They all have it, and it's all inactivated at the exact same spot. Now, how, how do you come across that? I mean, really? That doesn't happen randomly. That, the only way of inheriting, the, the only way of passing DNA on that we know of is inheritance. So the only way this could have happened, the only way this plagiarized DNA that, that we plagiarized from the apes or the apes plagiarized from us is if we had a common ancestor and uh, it passed vertically down through us. Through now, us. the question is how it happened in the first place, and clearly we were in a vitamin C-rich environment so that uh, if this thing got knocked out, we would no notice, would notice. There's no selective pressure against it. If we didn't have a whole lot of vitamin C and we had that uh, mutation, that person would die before they'd even um, give birth, right? You'd have yeah. scurvy and you'd die. Um, now, interestingly enough, you brought up some moths. Now, this is a great point for this exact thing, is during the Industrial Evolution, you had uh, these white moths. What was it? The spotted... Peppered moths. Peppered moths. You had... Uh, this is one of the icons of evolution that Jonathan Wells wrote a book about. Yeah. yeah. So you had these, uh, these white bark trees in England at the time, and these white moths, as they were against the bark of this tree, weren't easily seen by predators. And yet you had the spotted moth that would get eaten more often than not than the white moth. Well, after the Industrial Evolution, or Revolution, excuse me. <laughs> it's a Freudian on, slip. <laughs> mine's stuck on Evolution. But uh, after the Industrial Revolution, the soot came down and it started blackening these trees, made them a little bit darker, and then you had these sp the peppered moths that were actually able to blend in better than the white moths, and the white moths were getting eaten by prey more often than not. It's the same exact sort of concept as the vitamin C. Right, the, the natural selection. Um, and the scientists wondered how much of a role does natural selection play, and it was almost uh, dead as a mechanism for evolution at the end, turn of the uh, 20th century when it, when it began. It turns out that natural selection is actually a major force. It's a major force, and this is case in point. Um, you know, when you start and you have the white trees, uh, it, most of the population of those peppered moths were white or speckled, very few dark. And when you had the Industrial Revolution, the population shifted almost the reverse. Yeah. Most of them now are dark. Dark with very few with very white, few white speckled. ones. Yeah. Um, now, Jonathan Wells had a whole uh, chapter on this, and he said, you know, these moths never land on the trees. Um, it was a staged photograph. And Jonathan, I don't know if you know anything about science, but of course it was staged. You're not going to sit out there and wait for peppered moths to, to sit there while, with your camera. You're, you're going to take a dead moth and stick them on there and take your picture for the article. Um, and so Jonathan Wells said, well, they, they never land on the bark. Uh, no. If you actually read the, the original article, they said they were observed in the wild. Uh, uh, the predators had come and they'd pick them off. Um, so... That whole chapter is just horrible. Well, obviously, because they wanted to stage it for an article picture, that it's, means the yeah. entire article is so, false. So amazing, you know, he jumps from that conclusion to, you know, this, the whole thing was falsified, and it's ridiculous. Um, all right, so so we talked about pseudogenes, um, natural selection. Retroposons is another one. Um, retroposons, and what I love, if you ever want to end a conversation uh, with a creationist about evolution right away, um, ask them this question. Say, uh, what do you make, uh, how can you explain shared pseudogenes and retroposons without recourse to evolutionary theory? And, and see what they have to say. <laughs> because, uh, you know, often people will say, there's no evidence for evolution at all. And you say, oh, really? Well, what do you make of shared pseudogenes and retroposons? Almost always, they will never have any clue what you're talking about. Yeah, they'll shut up right at that point. You won't even have to you, explain it. Yeah, you have more information than they do at that point. Yeah. Retroposons are um, insertions of viruses. Uh, so a certain type of virus called a retrovirus, HIV is one of them. They uh, are made of RNA, and uh, they actually have a, a, a gene that uh, transcribes the RNA into DNA. Usually it goes from DNA to RNA to protein, so that's why it's called a retrovirus. It retro transcribes the, um, 
the RNA and makes it into DNA. So it takes its own RNA, makes it into DNA, inserts it into your DNA, and then your own cell makes more copies of it. Uh, kind of a genius little mechanism. Right. Well, I mean, it's a great survival technique of these viruses. Right. It's very hard to, to um, track down where they inserted and, and to stop that in the DNA. You know, our, all we are are kind of big machines, right? Yeah, pretty much. Um, so anyway, the, these viruses randomly insert into the genome. And if it inserts in a germ cell, such as a sperm or an egg, that DNA will get passed on to, to the, the next children, generation. To the next generation. Yeah. Now, these are totally random, and it turns out that these retroposons, the ERVs, endogenous retroviral insertions, um, occur in the same place in humans as they do in chimpanzees, bonobos, orangutans, and other primates. Um, for this to happen, you know, um, creationists often say that they love to throw out astronomical numbers, you know, about the creation of the first cell or, the, you know, how unlikely it would be to, to evolve from one animal to another. Um, this is truly remarkable. The, the odds of randomly inserting across bonobos, gorillas, chimpanzees, humans in the exact same spot across billions of base pairs, it's mind-boggling. Well, not only that, but you bring up the fact that wasn't random. Yeah, that they're tossing out these astronomical figures for the first creation of that first cell. Yet, what about the lipids? Now, explain to them the lipids. Yeah, our cells are uh, encased in a membrane. Uh, it's it's a phospholipid bilayer. Uh, what that means is that one end uh, of, of the molecule that forms this. Um, it has a it's a phosphate head uh, that is water soluble, or it's called hydrophilic, water loving. The fatty acid tail is uh, hydrophobic or water hating. It is not water soluble. So what happens if uh, you put molecules, uh, a bunch of phospholipids in a test tube in a water solution? What'll happen is they'll make little spheres. They'll form uh, bilayers. So you'll have a, a phosphate head pointed toward the water and then a fatty acid tail and then the other one's upside down it's a fatty acid tail and a phosphate head and so what happens is the the phosphates are, are always pointing toward the water and the fatty acids are kind of hidden from the water by the phosphate layer so you have a bilayer it's it's water uh, phosphate fatty acid tail fatty acid tail and uh, phosphate and then water inside the cell um, and this will happen spontaneously without any action on your part just because of the interaction between the phosphate solipid and, and the water environment. So there's for your astronomical numbers. I mean, this is something that occurs every yeah. single time with these lipids. Right. The formation of the cell membrane isn't the problem. Um, the problem would be uh, how did the DNA get to code the cell membrane. Yeah. Now, see, that's an interesting thing. And... Uh, I've actually heard of certain things. I'm not going to comment on them because they aren't very well tested at the moment, but scientists are working on that very problem. Right. You're talking about abiogenesis, and there are multiple theories about it. And this is what I like about science. When, you know, intelligent design people, um, I'd love to see a research program into intelligent design. Michael Behe got on the stand in Dover versus Kitzmiller, and they asked him, you know, are, are, are you currently going through a, uh, a research program? He said, why would I do that? <laughs> <laughs> because all intelligent design tells you is it was designed by God, period. Yeah, there's um, no reason to do any sort of... Yeah, yeah, it's like we were talking before about Adam and Eve. The, uh, religious people tend to luxuriate in the, the unknown. unknown. They love mysteries. Yeah, uh, what we don't know, God knows, Yeah, they feel they pour God into there. It's the God of the gaps. You don't know how this first cell formed, therefore God. Um, well, what scientists say is we don't know how the first cell formed. Let's get busy and find out. Yeah, let's throw out a few theories. Let's test against those theories. Disregard the ones that did not test properly, and let's find the truth of the matter. Absolutely. It's great. All right, so um, another, another evidence for evolution is what I like to call the fact of evolution. <clears throat> this is what the uh, evolutionary theory uh, explains, um, and this is what... Uh, intelligent design or creationism or any other alternative theory has to grasp um, not only geographic distribution of species for which um, 
I, I really don't believe there's any other alternative explanation. But the fact that the older in the rock layers you get, the deeper you go, the simpler the organism. So now, if you go to 3.5 billion years old, you get a single cell. Now, wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. This is, this is not true. My dad saw footprints of dinosaurs and humans walking together, so don't give me none of your evolutionary crap. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, <laughs> that's exactly right. I mean, if you're going through the strata and you're actually seeing the cells become simpler and simpler or more complex depending on which way you're going yeah. on it. So you 3.5 billion years ago, single cell. I think it took about 2 billion years to go from a single cell to a multicellular organism. Yeah. And from there you go, uh, so you see single cells, single cells, then multiple cells, uh, and then you get invertebrates, and then vertebrates, and, and on up. The closer you get to our time, the more complex the organism is. So that basic uh, journey from simple, old and simple, to uh, recent and complex uh, needs to be explained. If, if Genesis were literally true, what you would have is nothing, 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 everything. Bam. You would have Bam, everything. everything right there. They love to, to talk about the Cambrian explosion, but you have to remember this explosion, in quotes, occurred over something like 10 to 60 million years. And uh, we'll put a picture up on the website, but these animals are not things that you... They look like something out of a science fiction novel. <laughs> it's amazing. These things look totally bizarre. And that's all that lived there for millions of years. Well, that'll teach them to live in that explosion. You know, I'd area. love to see the part of Genesis where it said, you know, on the fourth day God created trilobites. Yes. Well, that would have been, that would have taken God too long. I mean, we're talking 6,000 years, and have you seen how big the Bible is? <laughs> so, I mean, seriously, if God was talking 4.5 billion years, I can't imagine the size of that book he was, he'd be yeah. talking about. Yeah. Uh, the... Another um, one that actually isn't brought up all that much, kind of like the geographical distribution of species, is a nested hierarchy of species. Um, you sometimes hear about this, but you don't really truly understand what it is. Because uh, I think Linnaeus in the 1700s um, kind of did all the taxonomy where he... Uh, so even before evolution was, was uh, brought forth as a theory, we knew that these species uh, kind of form nested hierarchies. So you go from um, like bacteria, prokaryotes, and eukaryotes. And in the eukaryotes, you know, you've got yeast, and, and then you've got um, multicellular organisms. Then, and then you go down to, like we were saying, invertebrates and vertebrates and, um, you know, protocords yeah. and, and all these. So basically, you, the kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species that they made you remember in the seventh grade. Yeah, I can't even remember um, it now. It's been so long. <laughs> that's the nested hierarchy. We, we go from kingdoms and then down, 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 and, and finally you get into the species. Um, the fact that we can group things in terms of reptiles and mammals, and then we can take those and, and say and those are both vertebrates. It's basically right? a large tree you're looking right. at on the wall. The fact that we have that nested hierarchy can only be explained by evolution because at the top you got the uh, bacteria and then you go down. It's kind of like a trip through the fossil record. Kingdom, yeah. phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Yeah. Nested hierarchy of species. I'd love to hear why uh, God created a nested hierarchy of species instead of a, rigidly, um, a rigid hierarchy where there actually there wasn't a hierarchy at all, where we just have to put them in these uh, well, little bins, that's like easily, a shelf. You, know, you just haven't put much thought into this Clearly. where God's concerned. It's as easy as God alphabetizing his books. He likes everything to be in certain shelves on certain <laughs> orders, so he's just alphabetizing the species by putting them in this nested hierarchy. Now, I can't believe you but would doubt God's... Uh, alphabetizing books is one thing, but then putting them... It's like alphabetizing them inside of genres, right? So you have God science is fiction. All powerful. Of, he knows more the than I so. <laughs> of, of of animals. Yes, the Dewey Decimal System all right. of species. Yeah. So finally, uh, the last one is a really interesting and nearly brand new finding. It's only a couple of years old. Um, Ken Miller brought it up in the Dover versus Kitzmiller proceedings. No, wait, wait, wait. Are you saying that we're still finding more and more evidence that supports evolution? Yes, and I, no I evidence I, that refutes it. I don't know if I can continue listening to this. <laughs> I'm sorry this offends you. Well, it should. Let, let, me, um, let me offend you even more. Oh, well, okay. Let's begin. So Ken Miller was a star witness of the um, prosecution of the Dover versus Kitzmiller in Pennsylvania. You remember that when they were 
Yeah. Um, they're trying to bring in intelligent design and they wanted to bring yeah. in uh, pandas and people and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he, he was, he, my God, he's a great, great, great biologist. He, he's the author of the, the leading biology textbook for high schools. Uh, he's a Roman Catholic, and, uh, so a theist, and, and a great biologist. He believes uh, the evidence for evolution is irrefutable. Anyway, he was uh, talking about evidence for evolution and... The year before the trial came out, um, he was reading the literature and they found uh, an interesting study. Um, in, in primates, except for humans, so we're talking apes, bonobos, I believe, maybe chimpanzees, they have 24 pairs of chromosomes okay. and we only have 23. So if evolu here's a test of the evolutionary theory. If evolution is correct, you don't just lose a chromosome, that's a massive amount of genetic material. Yeah, that's um, a lot of information. If, just yeah, there. we as human beings tolerate um, duplicated chromosomes a lot better. We tolerate uh, deletions. Uh, trisomy twenty-one Down syndrome, three um, three copies of the twenty-first uh, chromosome uh, that causes problems. It's a syndrome, uh, but you know, Down syndrome people with Down syndrome live a long time. They can they can get by, uh, but if you were to delete the twenty-one entirely, you wouldn't make. Yeah. Uh, so the question is, where did this thing go? It was, if it wasn't deleted, it had to have fused in, into a, a chromosome. And so you read this article, and it says that, uh, amazingly enough, we found evidence for it uh, in human chromosome two. And you have to understand a little bit how chromosomes work. You have uh, the caps of the chromosome um, are called telomeres, and the center of the chromosome is called a centromere. So in order to provide evidence of a fusion, you have to have telomeres in the middle and then duplicated uh, centromeres, basically. So you'd have to go from top to bottom, telomere, centromere, telomere, telomere, centromere, telomere, right? Yeah. You had to fuse these things together. And if you look at human chromosome 2, you have evidence for this. There is a centromere that we found. I think that one of them had, had gotten knocked out, but there's a, it has two centromeres, and it has a telomere fusion right in the middle. And if you look at if you separate these things out, it's equivalent to this ape chromosome, chromosome 13. It has like a cloned um, material of chromosome 13 as well as our chromosome 2. Well, I, I can't accept that evidence because I can't visually see it. I would <laughs> we'll provide a link. How about it? <laughs> um, it, it's absolutely amazing and a great confirmation of evolution. And again, this is stuff that, that you have to kind of march it out a little bit but it, it, to me, it seems irrefutable. There, there's no, why would God fuse a chromosome from an ape onto us, right? To say nothing of the same blueprint, right? But he's taking one and yeah. fusing it. I mean, at this point, we're talking more than just plagiarizing, more than just blueprinting us over and over again. God is actually fusing ape DNA into our own. And why would that make sense? Does, does God want hair on our backs? I have no idea why, why, why he would do that. Um, all right, so those in in uh, brief are are very very good reasons to accept the theory of evolution. So now let's talk about the theory of intelligent design. All right, let's begin. So what do you know of the theory of intelligent design? Uh, God did it, so shut your mouth. That's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much it. Yeah, um, well, I mean, it pretty much comes down to the fact that I think. Intelligent design is basically the religious way of saying, well, this theory isn't going away and it stands against what we believe to be literally true of the Bible, so why don't we just conform a little bit by saying, okay, there is evolution, but God did it. Yeah, I think um, intelligent design is one of the ways that they um, are trying to sneak creationism into schools. Yeah. Um, they, they hate the fact that that um, schools are secular and they have nothing to do with religion and they can't have anything to do with religion and so they keep trying to sneak this stuff in. Um, and one of the historical ironies, I think the great historical ironies, creationism has evolved. <laughs> it's evolved because of court cases. If you want to trace it back, um, in the 19-teens, I think fundamentalist Christianity uh, came into being as a response to uh, you know, probably the theory of evolution and um, the modern life and, and increasing technology kind of taking us away from God. Yeah. Uh, 1925, Scopes trial. Um, I love it. You watch Inherit the Wind, and it, it, it's like uh, we won the Scopes trial, right? The good guys won. 
We lost, um, actually. That's so true. Uh, he was yeah. convicted. John Scopes was convicted of teaching evolution, and it was against the law, and he was fined something like a hundred bucks. Um, they were planning on taking this all the way to the Supreme Court, but it got overturned on a technicality uh, in one of the appellate courts, I think the very first one, because under Tennessee law, the judge has to set the fine, and I think uh, in the trial, the it was did. the jury that did it. Yeah. So it got tossed out, and then no one cared. No one wanted to press it. Uh, what it actually had, uh, the effect of this, even though it was widely seen as a victory for the evolutionists, because they came across so much better uh, in the trial, it was widely covered. H.L. Uh, Mencken, who was a, a great skeptic, was um, there, I think, uh, covering the trial. Anyway, um, widely seen as a victory for evolutionists, but um, had a chilling effect on the textbook industry because they thought that these states, especially in the South, the southern states, wouldn't buy textbooks with evolution. And that continued for about 30 years until Sputnik was launched uh, in the 50s. Yeah. Uh, and suddenly, Russia was ahead of us in the space race, and suddenly America cares about science again. Yeah. So evolution suddenly is put back. Suddenly, science in. is important again. We are no longer within the thinking process of God did it, accept it. Right. Let's move we on. We got to beat those commies to the moon. Right. They beat us to space. We got to beat them to the moon. So become a very, very uh, important. Science becomes very important. Uh, almost immediately, you have uh, creation, uh, creationism coming back up. It was called creation science. Uh, because they started to do equal time for the Bible and uh, uh, evolution. Which, once again, that rapidly, rapidly yeah. failed. Um, and so they tried to come out with creation science. Uh, they tried to make science out of it. And one of the first and foremost was Henry Morris, I think, who, who came up with a book on flood geology. And creation science, I believe, failed. Uh, there was a court case called Edward versus Aguilard uh, in 1986 or 1987. And the Supreme Court um, said that you can't do it. You can't have creation science. It's advancing a sectarian religion, and schools can't do it. So uh, the uh, textbook of the time that they were gearing up was called Of Pandas and People. And if you look at the early drafts, this came out in the Kitzmiller trial also. If you look at the early drafts of, of Pandas and People, and this is great. You remember this, Dover versus Kitzmiller? Yeah, uh, yeah Pennsylvania, um, they wanted to, first they wanted to give equal time. But they knew they couldn't do that. And so secondly, they wanted to teach intelligent design. I think that was met with a bunch of uh, – got the biology professors all up in arms about it. And so what they did, they compromised and said, we're going to read this uh, statement. This small statement. Oh, I hated that statement. It was like evolution has a bunch of gaps. It's not a complete theory. It has its flaws. If you're more interested in filling in these gaps, basically – Go to the library and research a book called Of Pandas and People. And uh, this textbook <laughs> was actually, uh, they, they um, subpoenaed the publisher for prior drafts of it. And they actually had them. They kept them. Uh, and they sent them out. And it turns out that pre-86, uh, where the, before the Edwards versus Aguilar decision, it had, re, uh, it had creationism and, and um, creationists. All scattered all the way throughout that textbook. And in what turned out to be a pretty sloppy um, cut and paste, they did a search for all the creationists, creationism, and they, they replaced creation with creationism with intelligent design. And they <laughs> replaced creationists with design proponents. They found this out because there was a transitional fossil, right? It was, they, they incompletely erased it. It was C design proponent discs. So they, did, <laughs> they, they failed to take out the complete creationism, uh, creationist in there. And yeah, which I love. They shot themselves in the foot. It was wonderful. Point. It was they, they should learn how to use a shredder, I think, and get rid of those early drafts. Um, but anyway, uh, this, this whole point is that it, it's evolved along with Kent, Kent Hovind loves to say, you know, if you took creationism and, and evolution to court, then it would be laughed out of court, you know, because there's, there's so little evidence for evolution. But the fact is, uh, we've won every single court decision, I believe, since Scopes. So after Scopes, every time it's been tested, evolution has won. And creationists have had to uh, evolve. They've had to change in response to it. Yeah, now, they see, either adapt or die. That's the most interesting thing I find about this entire situation. It's natural selection. Is, it works. Yeah, you have creationists who are constantly shifting around their theory. And yet you have evolution. That theory has pretty much remained the same with just more information enlightening us to Right. We've, um, there were certain things Darwin was wrong about, and uh, we have definitely progressed since then. 
the whole um, neo-Darwinist um, fusion of genetics and um, Darwin's theory in the 20s or 30s, um, the whole where we got the mechanism for, for evolution and the inheritance of genes. Um, and, and, you know, we've updated it with molecular methods and all that stuff, but natural selection has pretty much re remained the same. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've pretty added much sexual selection, the genetic The basic drift. idea of it has remained yeah. the same, constant throughout it all. And yet you have this creationism, this intelligent design, that they're constantly trying to shift this way and that to fit the mold. Right. So, intelligent design is not a new theory. It's, it's actually, I, I remember having it discussed uh, in the early 90s in one of my philosophy classes. Uh, it was called the teleological argument. It was from Aristotle. Um, the argument from design is that the you know Aristotle was essentially a biologist. He looked around and and uh, compared species, and and his idea was that each organism was so well adapted to its environment that it had to be created specifically for that environment. Yeah. Um, and so it's been around since Aristotle. So it's almost three thousand years, twenty five hundred years. Of course, uh, he tossed it out, but he was on the he, right Yeah, track. he actually came up to evolution and you know came up with a theory uh, remarkably close to modern Darwinian evolution, but dismissed it out of hand because he didn't think it was plausible. Yeah, twenty five hundred years we could well, have I mean, advanced. The in Greeks that one almost step. came up with a steam engine. So yeah, yeah. And, and they came up with an atomic theory. It's, it's amazing, brilliant. Anyway, it was updated um, in, most famously by William Paley in the 1800s. He wrote a book all about it. and His main argument was, you know, you walk along a beach, you stub your toe on a watch, pick it up, you look at all the gears and how they were intricately worked together, and clearly it was designed for a purpose, therefore someone made the watch. Yeah. And how much more complicated is a human body, especially the eye, for example, the ear, um, the opposable thumb, uh, but also, interestingly enough, um, he said, you know, we should thank God that he didn't put our nostrils pointing up because then when it rained, we'd all drown. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, that's pretty creative. That actually sounds like perfect, reasonable sense yeah. to me. I mean, obviously, you come across a watch. Hey, that, I know that a human created that. So, I mean, what's the difference here? I mean, I, perhaps I'm just retarded or perhaps it's because we have experience with watches. But well, what's your I'm, take on it? I think you're just retarded, actually. I'm okay with that. <laughs> I get the special Ed bus, and you know, I, I get to park in easy places. Horrible. <laughs> Excuse me, we're talking about a watch uh, experience. All right. Come on now, keep uh, up. Hume, David Hume, um, Scottish philosopher, uh, brilliant guy, one of my favorite philosophers. Pretty obscure because no one outside of philosophical circles really has ever heard of him, um, but brilliant guy. Uh, you remember Glenn Beck talking about Kant? Yeah. Um, well, Kant wrote in his wrote in a letter, I believe, that he said that David Hume uh, awakened him from his dogmatic slumber and it really roused an interest in philosophy from him. Um, so he owes a lot to David Hume. Uh, anyway, David Hume destroyed this argument um, in, I believe, the 1700s. Well, then why is it still present? Obviously, Hume is wrong. Yeah. You um, you really need to if you haven't read Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, um, it's my favorite book from Hume, and it really destroys almost all of these. It addresses the arguments of miracles and and certainly the argument from design. Uh, it's wonderful. Um, I highly recommend it. I'm sure you can find it cheap out there. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he goes in there um, and he has certain people. It's kind of set up like Plato's Dialogues. He has people dialoguing, Chatting conversing out, back yeah. and forth. Um, and so he explains that the basic underlying argument, the argument from design, is it's an analogy. It is an analogy. Uh, you take humans making watches and you compare that to God making the universe or God making humans. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with arguments from analogy is that they necessarily take two different things. If it was the same thing, you couldn't compare them. So they have to be necessarily different. Now, strong arguments from analogy uh, take things that are different but very, very close to each other. The stronger the argument from analogy, um, the, the more similar the yeah. things are, um, and vice versa. The, the weaker the argument, the more different they are. And I don't think you can get things more different than a finite human being and an infinite God. And the only reason we know that watchmakers make watches is that we have experience with it. We know people make watches. So are you trying to tell me that God shot himself in the foot because he hasn't come down here, introduced himself to us, and shown us? Well, we have no have experience with God creating universes. No, that's just crazy. God 
God is here to help us grow and spiritually develop. And why do you want to step on that? Yeah, I mean, why would you put down the fact that we have absolutely no experience with God, therefore how is it we composite this supernatural being for our own creation? And yeah, I just don't know if I can talk to you any longer. <laughs> so, so the argument from analogy is extremely weak. Um, we know how human beings are made. Sex. Yeah. Intercourse. Lots That's and lots. how they're made. Um, and we know that uh, anytime you have sexual reproduction, you have natural selection and you have evolution. You have dominant um, genes taking over here and right. there. We have genes. no evidence or experience whatsoever with God making humans out of dirt or ribs or any other well, form I mean, of matter. Come on now, men have one less rib than women do, oh, so what are you talking about? Oh, God. <laughs> Don't get me started. Yeah, all right. That's all still right. going on. I had to uh, had my wife uh, correct uh, her primary teacher because my Again? son asked me that question. Just uh, that once, but okay. good Lord. Yeah. Um, all right, so the second part of argument from design is that it's so complex, right? The human eye is so complex it could not possibly have evolved on its own. Of course not. It had to have a creator. And the problem with that argument is that it is self-defeating. You cannot have something less complex make something more complex. Sure um, you can. The computer's more complex than I am. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so you're, what you're doing is you're saying, here's the basic problem. The basic problem is complexity. And to solve that problem... I'm going to posit something that's even more complex than the first thing. Yet what created that more that, complex thing? That is a giant step backwards. Yeah. You can't solve the problem. And it was interesting, Dawkins' God Delusion, um, in, in the uh, <laughs> wittily titled uh, chapter called There is Almost Certainly No God, he turns this argument from complexity on its head. They say that, that we're so complex, that you, the, the chances are so small that we were... Uh, that we evolved or happened by random chance, um, that, that God is necessary. He said, well, if, if God is more complex than us, then the chance that he evolved by random chance or just appeared on the scene fully formed is even more astronomical than that. So clearly he almost certainly does not exist. I thought that was pretty, uh, pretty <laughs> bright. That's actually a pretty witty way of putting yeah, it. Yeah, I like it. Let's see, if God created us... Now, nature can make, you know, spontaneously make things, complex things, like uh, snowflakes, for example, yeah. or uh, patterns in the sand or rocks. Um, you know, you don't require a designer to make that stuff, so why, why uh, would you require a designer to make organic yes, stuff that's complex? Do. <laughs> don't you know that Jesus is holding together the protons? All the protons. And therefore Jesus is also forming each and every one of those little snowflakes because he's holding together those protons? Amazing. One of the other arguments um, you hear, well, one of the main arguments for, for intelligent design is the argument from irreducible complexity. Oh, right. It's one of my favorite ones, one of my favorite ones. Um, Michael B. he wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box, and the whole idea was that the cell is, was a black box to Darwin, and now with the new molecular stuff we're coming up with, uh, Darwin could not even conceive about this stuff, and, and uh, if he did, then he'd know, you know his, his theory was uh, in trouble. Well, see, in an all honesty, the way I look at this is Darwin didn't have that black box, as it's put, and yet he came up with some theories that fit relatively closely to what we're finding out right now. So that speaks more to his credit than it does. Yeah, we're talking um, molecular evidence um, points in, in the same direction as, as paleontology, as geology, as all these other um, lines of evidence um, in that evolution is an accurate reflection of reality. So he's really um, doing his reader a disservice here by pretending that it doesn't. But uh, he gives a few examples. Um, one he gives is the bacterial flagellum. Um, oh, of course, because, you know, obviously that was wrong. And the, the thing that he doesn't understand, I think, is a biochemist. And I think the, the, main, uh, the main way that irreducible complexity misses the point um, and, and fails to grasp evolutionary biology is something called exaptation. You can have um, an irreducibly complex structure evolve. It just has to be exapted from something else. So, for example, the flagellum. Um, if you look at it, I'm, I'm not sure it's irreducibly complex. I think you can remove up to 40 proteins and still have it function, uh, not as well, but it still functions. It would still function. But, um, 
But uh, if you look at it, there's something called the type 3 secretory system where the bacteria, and you mentioned this before, the bacteria use it to poke a hole in the cell membrane and inject whatever it is, you know, their DNA or whatever it is into the cell. Um, and it's just a hop, skip, and a jump from that to the bacterial flagellum. There's a great article about this because, you know, you hear the goalposts being moved because there was an article that, that proposed this as a, as a pathway. You start with the, um, a totally different function and you end up with a flagellum. Right, yeah. and B he cried foul because he said we need a mutation by mutation uh, breakdown breakdown of start to finish, and what Nick Matsky did was he provided that it's amazing you go from a single pore to a to a flagellum in something like twelve steps, um, brilliant work on Matsky's part, and I believe it's now been cited in literature. It is available either at the Pandas Thumb or uh, talkorigins.org. I would recommend that highly to anyone who's interested in it. But the, the point that they miss is that uh, you don't have to have that same function. And it was something that Kenneth Miller um, uh, refuted brilliantly and very subtly. He, um, uh, one of the chapters, you I know, Michael B. gives as an example is of irreducible complexity is a mousetrap. If you miss that little um, wire that breaks the mouse's neck, it can't function as a mousetrap. If you miss the spring, it can't function as a mousetrap. If you don't have that base, it can't function. If the hook isn't there, it can't function. What they don't understand is, yes, you can. I mean, you can remove the base and fix it to the floor, and it still works. It won't work as well, it won't work as but well, it'll still work. But it'll work. You could, you know, anyway, what he did was he took a mousetrap, removed a couple parts, and used it as a tie clip. <laughs> and he wore it in the court, clipping his tie. And that's exactly the point. It may not have been a mousetrap to begin with, but evolution just works with what's there. And the mutation, bam, then it can serve a completely different function. Yeah. Uh, We're talking adaptation here. Plain yeah. and simple, adaptation. In this case, it would be exaptation because it's using an, a, a structure that's uh, already, already there. And reducing and it's, it. Yeah, it, it's, re, it's changing its function. Um, and you know, one of the ways that creationists will argue that there is no increase in genetic information. You'll hear this all the time. It's one of their new things because people don't really understand. They have a common sense idea of what information is, but they don't know what the real uh, definition of like Shannon information is, the, how it's rigorously uh, described. I believe Shannon information is that you can't compress it. So the more random it is, the more information it uh, holds because you can't compress it. If it's a line of A's, then you can just compress it into A into times a 13, times, whatever. Yeah. A to the power of. So uh, that's, I believe, like Shannon Kopersky's, something like that. Um, it's a rigorous kind of description of information, definition, mathematical definition of information. They say that information can never be increased by mutation. Mutation just destroys it, right? <laughs> Wrong. What you can do is have a duplication and then, you know, if it's um, necessary for your existence, then you have two copies, right? So one of them can continue producing the protein. The other one can then is free generation by generation to be mutated on. Uh, and that's how you. And that's actually, uh, Behe brings up the blood clotting cascade and the complement. And if you look at the blood clotting cascade, first of all, in fish. They have a low pressure system. They're missing quite a bit of our blood clot, and therefore they don't need much blood pressure. They don't. They don't need it. Right. They don't need it to clot really quickly because it's a slow leak. Yeah. Um, we need it to clot fairly quickly, or we'll bleed to death, depending on the size of the laceration. Um, but they're missing quite a few arms of the. Um, I mean, I think dolphins don't have the Hageman factor. Uh, they're missing quite a few of these so-called indispensable clotting factors. Yeah, now see that that is actually something that I've heard several times to refute evolution is the clotting factor within no. humans. If you look at the clotting cascade, a lot of these um, enzymes that uh, these proteins that actually clot are duplicates. Um, so you've duplicated this, and then you've had one or two mutations, and it works a little bit down the cascade. But there, the homology between a lot of these are... So you, if you take the fish cascade to us, you can kind of trace down where it duplicated and what mutations it occurred. So clearly not irreducibly complex and uh, uh, is, is itself an argument for increasing information by duplication. <laughs> and yet again, this is something where science is not just taking it from one source, i.e. carbon dating. Science is taking this from several different sources combining it together to come to one answer. Right, right. It's how science works. Um, so the next 
part, and maybe the last part. I don't even want to go into complex specified information. That's William Densky's. It's um, been refuted over and over and over again. I don't think anyone really talks about it. They'll talk about irreducible complexity, but they won't really talk about complex specified information. I think it's it's a fallacy um, on its face. The idea is that you have specified information because it's uh, it, it's designed for a certain purpose. It's horrible. It's yeah. awful. Well, I mean, push comes to shove. We can put a link for it up on the site just in case anybody ever does come across I, it. I, I do not recommend reading it unless someone you're in a debate with William Dembski. <laughs> I think that he's the only one who actually talks about it anymore. Um, but let's talk about the argument from fine-tuning. This is, I think, the next wave of intelligent design because we've refuted pretty much everything else. So are you trying to tell me that, evolu or excuse me, intelligent design is evolving once again to try and fit the mold? Yes, yes, absolutely. I, they, you I, know, I don't know if it's I like, It's like whack-a-mole. <laughs> the well, mold pops up, we whack it down. Another one pops up, we whack it down. <laughs> um, so this is the latest. Um, and the argument is that there are so many constants in the universe that are so clearly fine-tuned uh, for our existence, uh, that there has to be a God who's twiddling the knobs and pushing the buttons and setting up these parameters. You know, and they'll say, for instance, if the Earth were, uh, you know, a couple more miles out or 1% out, you know, that's one of their favorites. It seems like small, but if 1% of, you know, like millions of miles, that's, that's a lot. Quite a few. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or if the gravitational constant were, you know, varied by just a little bit, then none of the matter would coalesce. And, um, so there are a bunch of these constants. First of all, we only have one universe, right? Yeah. We don't know if there's a cosmos of universes out there. Um, one of the, the big counter, and, and the biggest counterargument to me, the one that really knocks it over, is the anthropic principle. If it weren't so fine tuned and that's kind of a loaded term fine tuned because yeah, well, I mean it even presupposes that the idea of a yeah. fine tuner but it, if it weren't so quote fine tuned uh we wouldn't be here to argue about how nicely fine tuned it is <laughs> we wouldn't exist um uh, it's horrible it's a bad bad argument but um so that's one way of attacking it i think on its face it's a little more difficult to to describe to people but there's a fallacy called affirming the consequent and that is, if A, then B, B, B therefore A. Therefore A. Yeah, it doesn't work. And I'll tell you why it doesn't work. Because, say, for example, if it is raining, the sidewalk is wet. If uh, the sidewalk is wet, therefore it's raining. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Yeah, except there are a lot of other plausible alternative explanations. You did not just spit on that sidewalk. <laughs> you can vomit on the sidewalk. Spill your drink. It could, uh, someone sprinkling could be sitting there with a hose or a sprinkling yeah. system. Um, it could be just a condensed, um, you know, from dew or I don't know. It doesn't have to be raining. Uh, so the main problem is, and here's their argument in a nutshell. It follows the exact same form. If God designed the universe, then we would expect to see constants being fine-tuned for our existence. In fact, we do see constants fine-tuned for our existence. Therefore, God designed the universe. It's exactly the same. Yeah. It's a fallacy because it sets up... Um, uh, that there's no other possible, possible alternative explanation. explanation. Well, of course, there isn't any other possible explanation because God created us. Well, you know, there could be an infinitude of different universes out there in the larger cosmos. So you're saying God just took over ours None of... and there's another God out there <laughs> taking over another one? None of which are inhabited because their constants are all screwed up. We might be inhabiting the only universe that is inhabitable. But even to say that the fine-tuning... Even on Earth, there are... Lots of places we can't live. We can't live in the bottom of the ocean. We can't live in a volcano. We can barely live in the Arctic if we, you know, set up a lot of stuff to protect us against. Well, I mean, any of that involves us stepping forward and doing it for ourselves, but by ourselves, we cannot live in those types right. of Right. The Earth is actually a fairly hostile environment. You know, you've got predators. You've got places that are too hot, places that don't create any food, places that are too cold. Hostile is exactly right. I mean, we're talking... The uh, astronauts, before going to the moon, I can't remember what continent they were going to, but they were actually coming around to some of the places on Earth to get used to the type of environment they would find up on the moon. Right. Uh, it's um, to say nothing of the rest of the solar system. Yeah. Try living on Jupiter. How about Saturn? Oh, jeez. Um, All that. You know, Uranus. <laughs> that giant Try living on Uranus. I, I've tried. <laughs> it's not it's too pleasant. Venus, it's Venus, uh, Mercury. I mean, 
Try living on the moon. It's it's um, very very hostile. Try living next to a black hole. Uh, the these it's actually the universe is actually pretty fine tuned for the creation of black holes. There are yeah. tons of them. Uh, I, terrible argument, but you'll probably be hearing a whole lot more of it uh, in the future. Have we hit every? Well, one of the main problems with the argument from design also is that it sets up a false dilemma. They'll often say, "Look, we've only got two alternatives: either it's evolution or it's intelligent design." There's well, that nothing I else. Have trouble with that. I do have trouble with. I mean, first and foremost, that's not how science works. Science puts forward a theory. And until that theory is knocked down and replaced by another theory, I mean, this law of evolution, it's somewhat false calling it a law or anything else like that because science works in you posit something and until you find something more true, you will constantly be testing against it. Right. There, there's no such thing really as a law. Um, and, and this is another point by Hume. Um, we can only tell it's a law, or if it works, if it has worked in the past. And to the extent that it's worked in the past, we can feel comfortable that it'll work in the future, but we don't know for sure. Yeah. We may come up on some circumstance that the law of thermodynamics doesn't hold. And then what do we do? We have to develop a new theory for it. That's right. the way science works. So, you know, I'm kind of uncomfortable. Calling this stuff a law is kind of a holdover from 17th century, where they thought that everything worked according to natural laws like Newton. But I love this that this false dilemma because, A, it's an argument from incredulity. They don't have enough of imagination to pose anything else. B, before evolution, before Darwin, you didn't have that option. It wasn't a dilemma at all, right? Uh, so who's to say in 100 years we won't have a third option or a fourth or a fifth? Yeah. Um, but that's how they go in there. And it's very subtle because they'll act as if uh, their, quote, criticisms of evolution act as positive evidence for intelligent design. If you bring evolution down, you prop intelligent design up, doesn't work that way. Well, of course, it's, a, it's attacking the character, not the actual issue. Well, uh, that's probably about it. Yeah, well, I, I think we've beaten this within an inch of its life, but I have no doubt that somebody in the future is going to come at us with something else, and we'll probably have to do another podcast on this. There's, I Great, mean, I love talking about it. Next week... Um, we, uh, we may have your brother on. Maybe, we may, maybe if I can get a hold of him. Otherwise, next week we'll be devoted to a couple of other characters. I'm not going to mention who they are just yet. because It's a I secret. Haven't. You'll find out. <laughs> we don't want to spoil anything. No, no, but... Uh, but it'll be exciting. We'll, we'll get it up there. I'm still waiting for them to get me their biographies and the images they want to use. So before I start announcing them, I want to have that information so I can post it to the website. So just keep an eye out. I'll post up there who's coming on. But rest assured, we will have something quite interesting for you next week.